1793, the country of France embarked upon an audacious experiment in an effort to help increase human productivity and revolutionize their country culturally, socially, politically, economically, even spiritually, they made the decision to de-Christianize the widely accepted calendar of the time. So instead of a seven-day week, they chose to institute a 10-day week. Nine days of work followed by one day of rest. Now, since many of you have probably never heard of this before, you can probably guess how this turned out. (laughs) It was a radical failure. In fact, during that 12-year period, the country experienced skyrocketing levels of suicide. Families fell apart at alarming rates, and the people burned out excessively. Their efforts, ironically, to increase productivity only were decreased. They had less than they had before. So one of the lessons we can learn from this is that more work does not necessarily equal more productivity whatsoever. So what might this lesson have to say to something, uh, the people like us here today in 21st century America? Well, while we are not following a a 10-day-a-week calendar, working nine days and resting one, I wonder if we're actually getting any more rest than those people did back then. By a quick sweeping survey of the mental health and psychological standpoints and the health of people's souls today, it seems like we're not. Some studies reveal that we aren't resting anymore, in fact. One thing showed that 37% of Americans take fewer than seven days of vacation per year. In fact, the study revealed that Americans take the shortest paid vacations of any country in the entire world. And even when we do, our vacations are often spent working by checking our phones and being on our computers to make sure we stay connected. So like the French, I wonder if we are headed toward radical ruin as well. Physically, spiritually, economically, socially, psychologically. Perhaps all of our efforts to try and make progress is actually hindering us instead of helping us like we maybe thought at first. Well, what happy thoughts to begin a sermon today, huh? Well, we're continuing our series uh, today called Gaining Ground, which is all about how we can experience growth and progress in the areas of life that matter most, ultimately in hopes that this world and our lives might be more like heaven and less like hell. So back in week one, we looked at how God has given each and every one of us a footprint, and he's called us to multiply for good what he has given us by his grace. Then after that, we saw that all the ground that we find ourselves walking on isn't just ordinary, it's holy, and that we can gain ground as we live attentively and responsively to the move of the Spirit all around us. Then in week three, we saw that we can gain ground as we become like what Jesus described as the good soil. We feed what helps to bring about growth and life in our lives, and we weed out anything that might stand in the way. And then last week, Pastor Brian gave a powerful message about the greatest obstacle that stands in the way of us gaining ground, and that is our fear. But before we move ahead this morning, I just want to take a moment to pause and just offer a word of pastoral encouragement. 
Over the past few weeks, I've been speaking with many of you and just hearing about some of the challenging times that you might have been going through this summer. And I've been going through some tough times in our family. We've been experiencing that ourselves. And so this thought of gaining ground might feel daunting and even paralyzing or frustrating to you because right now, you might find yourself just merely trying to survive. And if that's you, I want to encourage you in this way. Spiritual growth rarely, if ever, happens in a neat, straight, up-and-to-the-right kind of way. Instead, I think spiritual growth most often takes a shape like this, where it feels like it's a spiral. Highs and lows, ultimately moving in the right direction, but having a lot of downturns along the way. Just imagine each of these loops kind of representing a year or season of your life, and while there might be some uh, good parts to them, there's also a lot of times that it makes us feel like we're not gaining ground, but losing it. But each of these downturns, I believe, can be a prelude to the significant growth that God wants to orchestrate in your life. So if you find yourself set back or discouraged, take heart, take courage, because you might just be on the brink of a breakthrough that God wants to orchestrate in your life. And often in hindsight, we can look back and see that most of the time, the most significant points of growth that we experience are not during the highs of life, but often during the lows. So know that God is with you and that this season that you're experiencing, it might just be a really bad chapter in a really good story that God and Jesus are still writing. Amen to that? Well, let's, uh, today then, I don't want to attempt to burden you with one more thing to do, but instead, instead extend Jesus' invitation for you to be. So today, we're going to look at, in order to gain ground, we have to let the ground rest at times. In order to gain ground, we need to let the ground rest. And the reason for that, I believe, is because spiritual, genuine spiritual growth cannot occur apart from a regular rhythm of rest. And as we're going to see, rest is integral, not incidental, to God's work in the world and God's work in your life. Rest is integral. So today, we're going to look first at how we were created for rest, and then we'll see why God has commanded us to rest. And then as we live a Sabbath-like lifestyle, we will see that this will result in us being freed by rest. So as we begin, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2, to pick up and learn how God created us for rest. So in chapter 1, we saw that over the six-day period, God made creation, and it was good. And now we see in the second chapter of Genesis what God does next, starting with verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. Because on it, God rested from all the work he had done in creation. Let's pause there. So in these opening verses of the Bible, we discover that there is a cadence to creation, a rhythm to work and rest. One, two, three, four, five, six. 
rest. One, two, three, four, five, six, rest. This is the time signature of living. The reverberation of creation resounds most beautifully when all of its members of God's orchestra play in the same uh, key to the same beat, all in concert with one another. There is both sound and silence. There is melody and harmony, dynamics and movement. One can only imagine how enchanting, how arresting, how wonderful this must have all felt and sound, sounded as if it was originally uh, orchestrated together. This is what we were made for. Now, I think musical notation is a fitting metaphor for God's original design of work and rest. Just try to imagine a musical score score for a moment with only the notes and not the rests. It might sound discordant, cacophonous, ear-splitting. If you've been to a fifth-grade band concert, you might have heard something of what I'm talking about. I've invited my friend David to come and play a little Beethoven for us here today. First as it was originally written, and then we'll let him play it a second time. So would you play a little bit of that for us, David? Nice. Can we thank David for a few measures of that? Great job. All right. Now, could you try and play that same piece of music without any of the rests that are there? Okay, so yeah. perfect. Let's, let's hear it. Hard to do, actually, and you've trained yourself to do that. But we thank David for uh, intentionally trying to mess up some Beethoven for us. As you heard it the first time, there was a soothing quality. Yes, this is how it's supposed to be. But you hear it the second time, and the quality kind of makes you unsettled, makes you cringe, and makes you kind of, instead of feel relaxed, makes you feel hurried or anxious or upset or frustrated, or you want to just yank him off the stage, whatever it might be. Now, I would like for you then, and what this illustrates, I would say, is that rest, it is not optional to music. And just as rest is not optional to music, so rest is integral and not incidental to God's work in the world and in our lives. Because without rest, our living and working, which was made to sound orchestral, will be dissonant, off-key, too flat or sharp. So imagine your life right now as if it was a written piece of music. What would be the note-to-rest ratio? How might your living and working sound if it could be heard? Is there enough space between your notes? Enough rest to allow for the enjoyment of what's being played? Enough moments in between for you to glance and take a look at the director, at the conductor? Is there enough time for you to give thanks and to listen around you and experience all the glory that is being heard as we play in concert with one another, with all creation? 
See, God made us to dance and to sing and to celebrate and to come alive to the rhythm of life that he created. And central to these measures of life is being fruitful and multiplying, working and resting, stewarding well and increasing our capacity for good. But for good work to occur, so rest must occur also. Rest as, is as integral to God's multiplication equation as work. Rest is not optional to work, not an add-on, but it is essential. Rest punctuates work the way that a period ends a well-crafted sentence. But in Genesis 3, we start to experience the first disruption of this enthralling sound known as the fall. And the syncopation gets lost. Adam and Eve improvise off key. And as a result, they eat from the tree. And what was once in time, in tune, in rhythm is greatly disrupted. Instead of work and rest, we now experience toil and leisure, unproductive work and unrestorative rest. H.H. Farmer has said that if you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. And that's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden when they disobeyed God. That's exactly what happened to the French people when they attempted to go against the seven-day-a-week uh, rhythm of work and rest that God built into the fabric of creation. And that's exactly what happens to us when we refuse to receive the rest that God has built for us to enjoy. Now, while we can't fully avoid the thorns and the thistles and the splinters that come with work and rest uh, until Christ returns one day, we can take steps forward toward recovering the sound of God's original calling to us. So later in God's story, we see that he wants to draw his people back to this original rhythm that he built into the fabric of creation. And so now let's look at Exodus 20 to learn how God has commanded us to rest as part of God's great Ten Commandments. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus 20. We'll start with verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer once wrote that an imperative is an indicative. That is what God commands us to do tells us something about who God is. Not only has God then composed a cadence of work and rest into creation, but this cadence resonates the very character of God himself. God is a worker and God is a rester. He is both the Lord of the harvest and the Lord of the Sabbath. Now back in week one of our series, we discussed how we are made in the image of God. And we are made to reflect that image as a witness to the world around us of who and what God is like. Because God works and rests in a perfect yet mysterious harmony, if we are to reflect his image to the world around us that is desperate to know him even if they don't know that, then this rhythm of work and rest 
must characterize our lives as well. We need to reflect the very way of God. Now let's stay with this idea that the commands of God tell us something about his character. In the New Testament, what does Jesus say, as a little quiz here, is the greatest commandment of all? What does he say? I kind of could make that out through all that murmuring. Uh, <laughs> love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says the second is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So if loving God and loving our neighbors are commands that God gives to us, then what do those things say about his character and nature? They say that he is a God of love, right? And so if God is a God of love, then we are to reflect his love and our inner character and our outer actions to the world around us. Love is to pervade our lives, and that is one of the great marks that indicates that we're growing. Gaining ground for the kingdom and for what matters most means that we are growing into people who God's love is increasingly living within us and flowing with, uh, from without us to the world all around. That's how we really can know we're gaining ground if we're growing in love. Now let me try and connect the dots about this whole love piece with the Ten Commandments and Sabbath. Now the great, greatest commandment that Jesus gives us has a lot of striking parallels to the Ten Commandments. Let me try and illustrate here. The first three of the Ten Commandments have to do with loving God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. All that has to do with loving God correctly. And then the final six have to do with loving our neighbors compassionately. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet. Now, there's been quite a bit of debate surrounding where the commandment to keep the Sabbath falls. Does it belong with the first three directed toward God? Or does Sabbath have to do more with loving our neighbors in the right way? Well, the scholars that I tend to agree with contend this, that the Sabbath is really the bridge commandment that links the correct love of God with the compassionate love of others. Thus, I believe it is impossible for us to live out our highest calling to love apart from keeping the Sabbath. Maybe you've been feeling stuck in your faith lately. Perhaps your relationship with God has kind of dried up or you just feel like you're going through the motions. Maybe you've prayed and asked God for something to change. I wonder if what God has already given us, this invitation to Sabbath, is the way that we can receive that change. It's a gift that he's constantly extending to us, but instead of trusting him with that gift, we instead ask him for what we think is going to work best instead of trusting him with what's going to be best for us. So I would say this, Sabbath keeping is not simply about doing what God says, but it's about trusting in who God is. Trust is the heartbeat to rest and that might be, that kind of rest might be what sets us back in the right relationship with God. But Sabbath isn't just merely about our relationship between us and God, but it's also between us and others and even the very ground and the world that we find ourselves a part of. A few chapters later in Exodus 23, we're given these added commandments about Sabbath keeping. Starting in verse 10 of Exodus 23. 
For in six years, you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. So from this command to let the ground rest, we discover the inseparable connection that exists between Sabbath rest and social justice. If we don't stop attempting to gain ground, then those who are poor and oppressed around us will have no opportunity to rest and be renewed because we are interconnected and interrelated to every other person on the planet. Our Sabbath breaking could have the effect of breaking the backs and the spirits of others but not only of other people, but of the very land itself. There are devastating ecological impacts when we fail to practice Sabbath. Our addiction to rest can ruin our world, or our addiction to unrest can ruin the world. I believe creation groans, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans, because creation has not been given the rest that it was made for. And that's a big part of God's, the story of God's people. Now, even though they were given this great, made, made to, for rest, created to rest, and then given the command to rest, they never fully embraced this invitation from God. And as a result, they were given over to the consequences of their choices. Had they rested the way God had called them to, they would have experienced blessing and flourishing. It would have been very fruitful. But because they never let the ground rest, one out of every seven years as God had commanded them, they spent time in exile that accrued for every year they didn't allow the ground rest. So since they didn't allow the ground to rest for many, many, many years, they spent 70 years in exile to make up for every one of those years they didn't let the ground rest. I imagine when they came back to this land that was the promised land, that having allowed it to be laid bare and untouched by people for that long stretch of time, I think they would have found it to have been a land once again flowing with milk and honey. Because as we let the land rest, it becomes even more fruitful. Let me try and illustrate here. Uh, the stretch of land that exists between South and North Korea is known as the Demilitarized Zone or the DMZ. This parcel of land sits unoccupied between these two warring peoples, and it has been described by some ecologists as one of the most diverse bioregions anywhere on Earth. Countless species of plants and other critters flourish in abundance there. And as we give space to our land, life begins to miraculously bloom like it has here Thus, the healing of what is broken in our lives and world will not simply come by our actions of doing, but also by our willingness to stop. So if we claim then to be passionate about things like social justice, then we must also be passionate about Sabbath rest. And not just passionate about it and that we agree with it, but passionate about it in the sense that we actually do it, that we weave it into our lives. So how can we begin to take some steps toward this Sabbath rest that we were created for, that we were commanded to be engaging with? 
Well, since many of us are going kind of from almost no rest to 24 hours, that would be a big stretch. And mighty rivers, they kind of begin from trickles and small streams. So we need to start somewhere. So let me kind of offer to you these seven Sabbath-keeping suggestions to try and take a next step toward experiencing more rest in your life. Here's the first one. Keep Sabbath weird. Keep Sabbath weird. More important than what day you keep the Sabbath is that you keep a Sabbath day. And you should keep that day weird. It should be like an alternative day, kind of like the opposite day to what you do the other six days of the week. It should be set apart. Sabbath should be a day where you refrain from any of the gaining ground activity that ordinarily drives our lives. And it should be different from a day off where you just catch up on all the chores and all the things you need to do around the house. So instead of that, to keep Sabbath weird, here's what you should do on Sabbath. Secondly, pray play, and rest. Pray, play, and rest. Setting aside a day to be more intentional to be with God and his worshiping community is central to Sabbath. Set aside time for corporate worship and personal prayerful reflection. But not only that, have fun. Get outside. Come to Summerfest this afternoon. Shameless plug. Maybe even try to do nothing. That's a major spiritual marker of maturity, the ability to do nothing. One of the leading theologians of our 20th century said this about doing nothing. Don't underestimate the value of doing nothing or just going along. Listening to all the things you can't hear and not bothering. Some Dr. Winnie the Pooh right there. Well, since the only day that I work each week is Sunday, um, not true, but, uh, but since uh, Sunday is not exactly the most restful experience for me, I've historically taken Friday as my Sabbath and more recently Tuesday as my Sabbath day. Uh, my, my wife gets a break from watching the kids, so I watch our two boys all day long. And while that is not exactly relaxing, it is restful. Relaxation does not equate to rest. And so I am resting from what I would normally do the other six days of the week, which is largely things related to Grace Chapel. And instead of doing that, we just have a ton of fun together with my boys. We laugh and play, and we uh, walk outside, and we wrestle, and uh, you know, we scream and cry. I still have to clean up the dirty diapers and change them. That's still part of it. But I try and limit all the other work that I do. And if it happens that both boys miraculously nap at the same time, you better believe I'm going to go lay down and try and get some extra sleep. So play, pray, and rest. That's what Sabbath is all about. That's what we're supposed to do. And then thirdly, kind of as a gauge to determine what you should do or not do, let me offer you this as a little test. Ask yourself the question, is it life-giving or is it life-taking? Life-giving or life-taking? I think this is really important because for some of us, things that might be life-taking could be really life-giving for others. For example, on, on my Sabbath, I love to be able to take a long run if I can. That's just very restorative to me. It helps me pray, clear my mind, kind of reset my body. But for other people, running is about the most life-taking experience you can possibly have. So you should not run on the Sabbath, even if I do. But there are things that give you life as well, and that's what you should invest your time in. It's a day not just for recreation, but for recreation. And then along with that, you need to make sure you refrain from anything that hints at taking life from you. So point four here would be to keep technology in its proper place. 
keep technology in its proper place. Uh, an author I really love, his name's Andy Crouch, grew up around Needham, and he says in his book that I think everybody should read, it's called The TechWise Family, he says that we should try and weave Sabbath-like principles into each and every day as it relates to our use of technology. So he would say, stay off screens the first hour, the last hour, and the dinner hour of every single day, and just see if you don't find yourself being happier. He even contends that one week out of the year, we should try and lay off our devices entirely. So earlier this month, we got to take a, a week-long trip uh, up to Vermont, and so I decided I'm going to shut off all my devices for 168 straight hours to see if what Andy says works. I was a little nervous thinking I was going to go through like a major tech kind of withdrawal, but something really mysterious and surprising happened instead. Instead of going through withdrawal, about day four, I started to almost notice the voice of God in my heart, in my mind, like I hadn't heard for quite some time. That still small voice the scriptures talk about. And it was enjoyable. I started to sense myself being more grateful for all the things around me. I started to sense that he was kind of leading me to maybe linger on in a conversation or really give more of my attention to my family in a certain way. And I started to realize that this kind of sense of God's presence is available each and every day. I just crowd it out by my use of technology. I think I suffered a little bit from what psychologists call anhedonia. Anhedonia, which is this inability to feel pleasure caused by overstimulation. And if you feel yourself not being able to experience pleasure like maybe you used to at, at the beach or the mountains or wherever, perhaps you're spending too much time on the device. And if you find yourself being unable to sense the presence of God that you hear people talking about, then it might be because you're spending too much time scrolling through things on your phone or your computer. So if you really want to find some rest, we have to keep technology in its proper place. Then fifth, choose grace over legalism. Grace over legalism. Jesus says that Sabbath was made for us, not us for the Sabbath. In other words, this is not a day to try and perform for God, but a day to rest with him. So don't beat yourself up too badly if you've struggled with this in the past. Jesus is the only one who has ever kept the Sabbath perfectly. It's a day for receiving grace, not for getting burdened down with a whole bunch of rules. Then number six, schedule it first. To riff off a phrase Pastor Brian used last week, Sabbath will not happen accidentally, only intentionally. So take out your planner and calendar and write when you will do uh, your best to, to rest before you schedule everything else and everything else overtakes your time. Maybe it's just a couple hours at first because you need to kind of build up to the whole 24-hour period. But I hope incrementally and gradually you can get there. Now with Labor Day weekend coming up next weekend, I think this is an opportune time to be able to try and practice Sabbath. I encourage you to plan out one of these days to be the most restful, worshipful day that you can possibly make it. I'd encourage you to come on back as we wrap up our series next week, Gaining Ground, by commissioning you for the work that God is calling you to do in your everyday life, whether as a worker or as a student or a homemaker or a retiree, whatever. And then number seven and lastly, Rest from giving or listening to Sabbath suggestions. <laughs> 
So we've looked at how we have been created to rest and how we have been commanded to rest. And as we do this, the result that we're going to experience in our life is more freedom. And that freedom is found by Sabbath rest in Christ. See, Jesus' intention for every single one of us is that we might live free lives, lives unbound by what can so easily ensnare and entangle our souls. And so he invites those of us who are feeling restless to overcome that by resting more in him. So listen to his most grace-filled invitation here in Matthew 11 as we wrap up. Come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens. And I will give you rest. It's a promise. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Another promise. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I think it is really rare to meet someone who lives with a sense of being unburdened, who walks freely and lightly. Yet that is precisely the kind of Jesus, uh, people that Jesus is calling us to be. People who possess a non-anxious presence. Imagine how people who are not anxious could be so good for the world around us. Imagine if you were a non-anxious presence, what your inner life might be like. That's what Jesus wants to free you for, my friends. See, in this context, the word yoke here, and the way that we can be this non-anxious presence is by discovering the secret of the easy yoke. And this yoke here that Jesus is talking about is, was like a wooden frame that would normally join two animals like oxen for pulling heavy loads. But Jesus kind of flips this whole idea radically on its head and says, my yoke is not heavy, my yoke is light. And the easy yoke of Jesus, the secret of it, is learning to live your life the way Jesus would live it if he was you. And what was central to Jesus' overall style of life that he chose from himself? Rest. We see it all throughout the Gospels. It's all throughout the Scriptures. And so if Jesus was one who practiced a life of rest, then as we practice that same restful lifestyle following his way, we might be able to experience the freedom that Jesus so deeply desires from us. He wants to free us from the burdens that we place on ourselves to look a certain way or perform a certain way to try and reach nearly impossible goals. He wants to free us from ever having to one up ourselves or prove ourselves to others. He wants to free us from feeling like we need to be fearful of missing out. And as we embrace this Sabbath, we can be freed from those fears because Sabbath keeping trains us to trust the God who not only made us, but to trust the God who is saving us each and every day. For on the eve of a Sabbath 2,000 years ago, we see Jesus bearing the yoke of the cross and carrying this tree up a hill called Calvary. He died not only to bring freedom to all those who have been oppressed because of the unrest of others, but he also took the very punishment that those oppressors deserved themselves on his own shoulders. And during that Sabbath rest, as he experienced it as death, Sin was defeated. Death was put to death. 
all while he practiced a Sabbath of death. And the same resurrection power that brought Jesus out of the grave, out of the ground of that empty tomb, that same power that brought him to life, my friends, is available to us as we follow his way, a way of work and of rest, of harvest and of Sabbath. And as Jesus' very death shows us and his resurrection proves, rest, it is integral, not incidental, to God's work in the world and in our lives. And so today, Jesus wants to invite you to let the ground of your life rest that you might better gain ground. And so as we close, I would just like to extend this prayer to you. Jesus' words from Matthew 11 again. And as you hear these words, remember prayer is not so much speaking to God as much as it is listening to God's word to us. Allow these words to enable you to step into a more restful way going forward. So I invite everyone to bow their heads, to close their eyes, to get in just a restful position as still as you can just for the next moment and hear these words as Jesus promised to all of us. Let's pray. And as we pray, we should always remember that Jesus is coming right up alongside us. He is here. And so imagine him to personally say these words to you because he is. This is from the message translation of Matthew. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So may we find rest in these promises, Lord. We ask this all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everyone prayed together. Amen.